Some of the Florida communities that were in Hurricane Ian's path doubled and tripled in size over the past decade, and that's adding to the human and economic toll. Now Florida officials are having to explain why, 11 years ago, their state eliminated an agency aimed at preventing sprawl. It's Tuesday, October 4th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, some coastal residents in Florida often have flood insurance, but it's a different story elsewhere in the state. We go inland, say the metro Orlando area that also suffered catastrophic flooding. Less than 5% on average have coverage. Federal health officials want you to get a flu shot. They say the flu is likely to come back after a two-year hiatus and come back with a vengeance. And a Northeastern University employee who ran a media lab was charged today with staging a bomb hoax. Officials say they found a threatening letter on his computer. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Nearly a week since Hurricane Ian tore through southwestern and central Florida, many hurricane survivors are navigating what may feel like a storm of red tape involving insurance coverage, cleanup assistance, and various permit services. But the state's reporting steady progress on one key front, getting electricity back. Familiar sound in Cape Coral and other parts of southwestern Florida. NPR's Quill Lawrence is in Naples. Search and rescue efforts have mostly now turned to recovery and damage assessment. State and local utility companies say they hope to have 95% of customers fully back online by the end of the week. On the barrier islands off the coast of Fort Myers, it's a different story. Authorities would not say when power might return to those devastated beach communities. And restoring ruined bridges from the mainland will also take time. Rivers are slowly subsiding from historic flood levels, and lines at gas stations are getting shorter. But the work of rebuilding hundreds of thousands of homes has hardly begun. President Biden is expected to visit the area tomorrow. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Naples, Florida. More than 400,000 people are still without electricity. At least 100 lives in Florida were lost to Hurricane Ian. The U.S. Supreme Court is considering arguments held today in a major election case involving the Voting Rights Act and congressional districts in Alabama. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports voting rights advocates are watching to see if the court's ruling will make it more difficult to protect the political power of voters of color around the country. Alabama is asking the Supreme Court to overturn a lower court's order for the state to comply with the Voting Rights Act by creating a second congressional district where black voters make up the majority or close to it. During oral arguments, Alabama's lawyer claimed the 14th Amendment does not allow race to be considered when drawing voting districts. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson pushed back, citing the congressional record. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way. The court is expected to rule by early July. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks end the day sharply higher, and Wall Street was rocked by a surprise report about billionaire Elon Musk. Here's NPR's David Gura. Markets are still volatile, but October has started out strong. Shares of Twitter jumped by 13 percent after Bloomberg News reported billionaire Elon Musk had offered to close the deal under the original terms for $54.20 a share. Twitter's case against Musk for trying to back out is scheduled to go to trial in less than two weeks. Trading of Twitter shares was suspended for several hours after prices spiked on news of Musk's about-face. David Gura, NPR News, New York. 
The Nasdaq and S&P close up more than 3 percent. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Federal authorities have charged a now former Northeastern University employee with planting a fake bomb last month on campus. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, 45-year-old Jason Duhame of Texas is accused of staging the hoax and making false statements to investigators. Duhame told FBI agents he was hit by a blast of air and sharp objects when he opened the package in his lab. The case also contained a threatening letter. But investigators say they found no burn marks or shrapnel consistent with an explosion. And they found a copy of the letter on Duhame's computer. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins says Duhame's actions affected the entire community. Our city more than most knows all too well that a report or threat of an explosion is a very serious matter and necessitates an immediate and significant law enforcement response, given the potential devastation that can ensue. Duhame is slated to appear before a Texas judge this afternoon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Two Uber men face human smuggling and money laundering charges after a federal raid of the restaurants they own this morning. Jesse James Moraes and his son Hugo Giovanni Moraes are accused of smuggling migrants into the U.S., Prosecutors allege the two men employed the migrants at their restaurants and withheld their wages as a fee for bringing them into the country. They own Taste of Brazil and the Doghouse in Woburn. Both men were ordered held after an initial hearing this morning. They entered no plea. Boston's 311 app is getting an upgrade. The app lets you tell the city about non-emergency issues that need to be addressed, such as potholes, litter, or parking issues. Boston has released an updated version that makes the app available in 11 languages that are the most commonly spoken in the city. The old version was available only in English. A lovely day if you like gray and wet. Rain likely tonight, still windy. Shouldn't be too much colder than it is right now. Tomorrow overcast again, more rain likely. Strong winds again should reach the upper 50s once again. 57 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. The death toll from Hurricane Ian in Florida is now at least 100, and it continues to rise in the hardest-hit counties still in search and recovery mode. On Pine Island, Florida's largest Gulf Coast island, the only road to the mainland is impassable. For people trying to get off the island, the Coast Guard, Sheriff, and Fire Department are standing by with boats and helicopters. But that is just a one-way trip. For those trying to get back on the island to check on homes or neighbors or to salvage their belongings, well, there's only one option, as NPR's Liz Baker found out. This pontoon boat is usually a party barge with beers and brogues, but today it's a ferry. We've got that huge pontoon that just pulled through, if you guys want to take a ride with us. Rosie Perez is on board. She evacuated before the storm and wants to get home to pick up the pieces, if any pieces are left. I'm nervous. It's my first time going over there, so I don't know what to expect, really. You you see the pictures and you hear about it, but it's nothing like about actually experiencing it. So, Passengers start sharing their hurricane stories. One guy says he pulled a dead woman out of the water. Another asks about looters. Everyone has heard unsubstantiated rumors, and many of the passengers have guns. Others think about the items they hope to recover. 
Uh, all my credit cards were in a little stack in the drawer. If I could find that dresser, I could get my credit cards. My medical records are there. I'm hoping to find something, something I could hold on to. The last time Lenny Satani saw his home in Matlache, it was flooded with five feet of storm surge. The fire department had to rescue Satani, his daughter, and his grandkids after the storm passed. As the barge fights a strong current and weaves around floating porter potties, sunken sailboats, and twisted metal roofs, Satani gets his first look at the destruction on shore. Oh my God, that whole bridge is gone. In some spots, you would never know. Homes and a road used to exist where now there's only a hole filled with black, brackish water. Rosie Perez starts to worry about her neighbors who stayed behind. You know, I don't even know if any, any of the people that maybe didn't survive, they haven't really announced anything. So the waiting game of knowing how people are is, is hard. The boat drops people off at a waterfront park caked with foul-smelling mud. Utility poles, pieces of houses, and a huge walk-in freezer from a restaurant block the road to Lenny Satani's roofless yellow fishing bungalow. That old house was there since 1949. Inside is a mess of mud with furniture and belongings flung everywhere by the storm surge. Satani's son-in-law forces the door open and starts to dig around. $500 watch my dad gave me for he passed away. Huh? Anything in your closet? I don't think so. Satani piles some photos, his old army uniform, and those credit cards he had been hoping to find into a container and wheels it away down the street, off to flag a boat to the mainland. He's not coming back. No, I can't do it. John Orbanis is on the fence about leaving. I'm 65 years old. I don't think I could do all this work that's got to be done. So what do I do? I put a FEMA claim in. And I walk away. Whatever FEMA gives me, I live on that, Social Security, and my retirement. Or do I come back here and try to rebuild? Orbanis' home in the Flamingo Bay trailer park has no roof, but it's still standing, so he's hosting three newly homeless neighbors. One of them is 75-year-old Diana Bisson. At night, she sleeps on Orbanis' kitchen floor. During the day, she and her partner sort through what's left of the home they've shared for 28 years. That's all my clothing out of my drawers. I'm just throwing it away. Um, my partner has cancer of the lungs, and she was supposed to have her last chemo Friday. Both our cars are completely cooked. But she hasn't yet found her most meaningful possessions. I lost both my son's ashes. They were in my room. They're gone. I have been all through that whole thing. I found this. That was my oldest boy, Leo's. A short gold chain now around her neck. Yep, I found it, and I'll never take it off now. Bisson and her partner are planning to leave as soon as the road is passable. They've heard maybe Saturday. She doesn't know if they'll be back, but this will always be home, even though it'll never be the same, she says. Liz Baker, NPR News, Pine Island, Florida. Now, Hurricane Ian made landfall in one of the fastest-growing places in the nation. Starting in the 1970s, a wave of newly arriving retirees and snowbirds made development across Florida explode. Back then, state leaders put rules in place to try to manage that growth. But over the last decade, state politics have meant some of those rules have disappeared, even as threats from climate change have grown more severe. Jenny Stiletovich from WLRN in Miami has been covering these changes. And um, Jenny, these 70s era rules, they were intended to limit growth. Tell me more about how they worked, whether they were designed with hurricanes in mind. 
Right. So in the 1970s, Florida actually became something of a model when it began enacting a bunch of laws to manage growth and, you know, protect against uh, those hurricanes. The laws were a response to big retirement and golf communities that developers were building across the state in wetlands and floodplains. Um, and in a state that sits squarely in Hurricane Alley, those are the areas that help buffer damage from storm surge and absorb the flooding. Sure. I talked to Nancy Stroud. Um, she's an attorney and land use planner, and she worked for the state in the 70s helping write those growth management laws. It's all connected. You know, if you do good growth management, then you're going to be able to manage some of the bad impacts of climate change. At least some parts of the state really stepped up, but it takes a lot of intention. It takes a lot of help from all sectors. And Stroud says the coast got particular attention. That included Charlotte Harbor, where Ian made landfall. So what happened? How did how did these laws disappear? <laughs> so so there's protections for the Keys, which is the Long Islands at the tip of Florida, and they're still in place. But for the rest of the state, a developer got that particular law overturned. So the state left it up to communities to voluntarily put limits in place and to help local governments enforce and follow those and other rules. The state then created the Department of Community Affairs in 1985. But developers hated the agency. They said the state was overreaching its authority. So the industry poured a bunch of money into lobbying to change the laws. Um, and when current Florida Senator Rick Scott was running for governor in 2010, he called the growth rules, quote, a jobs killer. Under his administration, the state did away with the department that enforced the rules and instead created the Department of Economic Opportunity. And just to pause on the timing for a second, you said 2010, so more than a decade ago, but, but at a time when it was already clear that climate change was making things worse, problems like flooding. Right, that's right. So researchers in Florida were already documenting rising sea levels. And by taking away the state oversight, that left local governments in charge and really paved the way for more growth. It removed checks and balances, and it lessened the environmental protections. And when, and when Rick Scott was governor, he was an open skeptic of climate change. Without managing the growth, Florida's population um, has grown really quickly in some areas, including the path of Hurricane Ian. And that means more more people were put in harm's way than likely would have been if those anti-sprawl measures were still in place. So I'm curious, what does now Senator Rick Scott say today? Yes, yeah, so we reached out to Scott's office for an interview, but they said he was unavailable. When he was asked Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation about rebuilding in such vulnerable areas, he said this. I believe these places are places where people want to live. They're beautiful places. So what you really have to do is you have to say, I'm going to build, but I'm going to do it safely. After Andrew in 1992, the state completely changed its building codes, which has dramatically reduced the risk of, of damage. So we should point out that those building code changes only address wind damage, not storm surge and flooding. And now Scott says the state also needs to invest in mitigating sea level rise and flooding. Fascinating. Jenny Stiletovich from member station WLRN in Miami. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you.
federal law enforcement officials in Boston are charging a former Northeastern University employee with staging a bomb hoax on campus last month. The report of a package explosion generated a massive police response, and it locked down part of the city. Walter Wuthman of member station WBUR reports. Jason Duhame was the director of Northeastern's immersive media lab. He called 911 the night of September 13th, saying a package he carried up to the lab exploded. Court documents show Duhame told FBI investigators the plastic case burst open and sprayed sharp objects that injured his hand. The package also contained a letter railing against Duhame's media lab and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. A federal bomb squad came and secured a second suspicious package. In a press conference today, FBI special agent in charge Joseph Bonavolanta said Duhame's story quickly unraveled under scrutiny. We believe he repeatedly lied to us about what happened inside the lab faked his injuries, and wrote a rambling letter directed at the lab threatening more violence. Investigators say they found no burns or shrapnel at the scene, and they found a copy of the letter on Duhame's computer. Law enforcement officials are not commenting on a possible motive, but Bonavolanta says Duhame may have been seeking attention. We believe Mr. Duhame wanted to be the victim, but instead victimized his entire community by instilling fear at college campuses in Massachusetts and beyond. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins said Duhame's actions brought back memories of the bombings at the Boston Marathon in 2013 that killed three people and injured hundreds. Our city more than most knows all too well that a report or threat of an explosion is a very serious matter and necessitates an immediate and significant law enforcement response given the potential devastation that can ensue. Duhame stands accused of conveying false information in hoaxes related to an explosive device and making material false and fictitious statements to investigators. Duhame is no longer employed by Northeastern. He was arrested near his home in Texas. His defense attorney has not returned a request for comment. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush talks about her memoir that details the sometimes harrowing struggles that shaped her rise in politics. That's ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies, hosting an in-person open house October 15th, 10 to noon. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Stocks rocketed again on Wall Street. The Dow rose about two and three quarters percent uh, uh, to close at 30,316. The index has grown more than 1,500 points so far this week. S&P picked up more than three percent today to finish the day at 3,791. The Nasdaq rose three and a third percent to close at 11,176. A Somerville-based startup raised more than 100 million dollars in recent funding for what it calls an entirely new approach to drug development. Local biotech Celerity focuses on RNA technology to develop medicines targeted at cells. Celerity has raised more than $270 million in funding since it began in 2017. Marketplace has all the day's business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 4.19. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fare with a modern twist. 
drop-off office lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston, laqchara.com, and MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, mathworks.com. Tonight, the Red Sox play the penultimate game of the season with Nathan Devaldi going up against Jeffrey Springs of the Tampa Bay Rays. 7-10 is the first pitch at Fenway Park. A chilly wind out there with showers lasting into the evening, overnight tonight, and back again tomorrow. Lows tonight in the mid-50s, just about where it is right now. Tomorrow's highs in the mid to upper 50s, then sunshine for Thursday. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Overcoming adversity has always been part of Congresswoman Cori Bush's political origin story. Tonight, we the people are victorious. We, we the people. It was in her victory speech the night she got elected in November 2020. I've been evicted from by landlords. I've worried about how I was going to put food on the table and for my two kids. I've been underinsured or uninsured. Now, as she nears the end of her first term as a Democrat representing St. Louis, Bush is out with the new memoir, The Forerunner. It starts with her family. Her father, Bush says, was a guy everyone knew, president of her elementary school PTA, and at one time mayor of the St. Louis suburb where she grew up. He taught his kids to be proud, filled their house with books on Black history, and at Christmas, Bush's father scoured stores to make sure his daughters had dolls that looked like them. I'm dark-skinned. My sister is light-skinned. Like, there is a big difference in our color. But my dad never made a He made sure that we understood, your Black is beautiful. You're beautiful the way you are. Bush writes that she thrived in elementary school. But that confidence was shattered when she started high school at an elite, overwhelmingly white Catholic school. It just ripped apart everything that I had believed about myself, and I had nothing left. Like, I was, um, I remember when I took that entrance exam and that administrator said to me, well, we don't believe you scored this high, we believe you cheated. And then after that, just being tripped in the hallway, being called the N-word repeatedly, there were all of these moments where it was just like, I want you to know that we don't want you here. Bush eventually transferred to a school she says was more supportive, co-ed, and Black. But by then, she says, something in her had died. She writes of working low-wage jobs, spending time living out of her car, surviving sexual violence, and a series of abusive relationships. Bush also shares the story of two abortions, one which she'd never disclosed publicly. I just remember trying to figure out, like, how can I raise a child? I'm trying to do school. I'm, I'm working. You know, my parents are finally proud of me. You were trying to turn your life around. I was around. trying to turn my life around, even though I was, like, pulling at straws, trying to figure out how to do it. And I just knew that I wasn't in a position to be able to have a child. But then when I went to the clinic to have the abortion, I just remember I, I decided on the table, you know what, I, I don't want to do this. I need more time. But 
Um, but I wasn't given more time. But now looking back, even though it was a traumatic situation, how everything unfolded, um, I made the right decision for me because I still went through so many things after that, that taking a child through that would not have been the best for a child. And just to be clear, when you say you decided on that table, you wrote that you told the nurse that you weren't ready, yes. that you didn't want to do this in that moment. Yes. The nurse wouldn't allow me off the table. They just continued on with the procedure as I was saying, no, I don't want, no, no. Um, and they just continued on and in because the instrument was already inside of me, it was too late to change that. You wrote that you were or that you are, in fact, concerned that sharing this story about what happened to you could be taken in a way that could be seen as undermining a woman's right to abortion care. What concerns you about going public and talking about this? Yeah, I, you know, because two things were happening, you know. I needed that help at that time. But then also being this black pregnant person, medical discrimination, it was prevalent then and it's still prevalent now. But I don't want people to feel like, well, you were mistreated. And so that makes these clinics bad. Like you like you don't need to have these services because of medical discrimination. No, there's medical discrimination in everything. So are you not going to get your diabetes medication? Are you not going to have, you know, your tooth checked out because of possible medical discrimination? No. Bush's road to Congress went through the streets of Ferguson, Missouri. She was one of the community activists who protested in the days and months after the police killing of Michael Brown. It was this photo of this 18-year-old boy laying in the street uncovered. And just throughout the day, you know, I just kept seeing this photo. And we didn't know, like, there was no playbook before that. There was no instruction manual saying, do this if this happens. We just reacted to this happening. And it absolutely woke people up because... What happened was there were protests that started all across the country, you know, um, in solidarity with what was happening in Ferguson. And I re I'll never forget in our community, there were people from all over the world who showed up to be out there with us. I want to ask you, because you're an activist, but you made a decision to run for Congress. What made you think that there was a way to achieve change from inside the system? I remember being outside, um, standing in front of the Ferguson Police Department. We were chanting, and it just felt like throwing pebbles at the ocean, thinking, you know what, we need to put people in place that believe what we believe. And so that's what I, I remember thinking about that, just standing there during a protest. And then it was several months later when someone asked me to run. You know, Congresswoman, your book closes as you are preparing to enter your first term in Congress, and now you are preparing for a second term in the House. How do you think about your future on Capitol Hill and your role in your party? You know, I think about when I first entered Congress, I wanted to represent the people of St. Louis to the best of my ability and then push further than that ability, um, but still unsure about what I could really affect what I could really do being a freshman. And 
now that we've been able to do so much, you know, the eviction moratorium that happened back, you know, when we were out there protesting on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, which we've heard many times was an unprecedented action. Um, And then just money that we have been able to get for the St. Louis area. So I'm going into this second term. I'm a lot more sure of the work. I have my shoulders back, my head up, you know, and I am ready to walk into Congress in this next session, completely confident that I'm doing what the people are asking. You mentioned the eviction moratorium, and I want to come back to that because it was an example, as you point out, of a way you led differently. You were on the steps of the Capitol. You you made noise, essentially, to get the goal, which was to have that extended. A few weeks later, the Supreme Court struck it down. So I'm curious, are there limits to bringing that activist lens, that activist approach to Congress? Um, I don't deal in limits. So no, I don't believe so. I think that because it's who I am, because I am an activist, I call myself a politivist. I coined that that term. Um, But um, I'm the politician and the activist. And so I won't take off my activist hat to be in this seat. And so if there is a point where I I feel like, you know, I need to do something to help bring awareness, then that is what I'm going to do. And the thing about an, an activist is it's not that we expect something necessarily to happen like right now today. And we understand that sometimes those things do happen, but also this may be a long game. That's Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri talking about her new book, The Forerunner. Congresswoman, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Yes, thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the flu forecast for the wintertime, and later remembering Loretta Lynn's singular contribution to country music, Candor. Your mobile phone is a radio on the go. Listen on the WBUR mobile app wherever you are and stay informed about all the news of the day. Dense clouds, some strong winds continuing through the evening hours, showers moving in and out. Tonight should be windy again, right about 54 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, a lot like today, overcast with rain from time to time, strong winds winds. Highs about 58 degrees. We could finally see some sunshine on Thursday. Highs about 68. The warmest day of the week may be Friday in the low 70s. 57 degrees now at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing the glories of Bach. Immerse in Bach's masterworks Friday and Sunday at Symphony Hall, handleandhaydn.org. And Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org sponsorship. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. One week after Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida, seven of the state's school districts remain closed today. As Kathy Carter of member station WUSF tells us, hundreds of schools have been damaged and remain without power. 
Florida's Secretary of Education says the state is working with school districts to support the safe return of all students. In Sarasota County, School Superintendent Brennan Asplin says hundreds of employees are dealing with the storm's aftermath. We have many employees that have had disasters happen at their own house, so they are really working on their own lives at this point in time. Whether we did anything remote or even had them come in, they wouldn't be able to even come in at this point in time. School buildings also represent nearly all of the hurricane shelters in Florida, and many are still being used for this purpose across the state. For NPR News, I'm Kathy Carter in Sarasota, Florida. The Biden administration is providing an additional $625 million in military aid to Ukraine as the country's military gains momentum in its war with Russia. Ukraine's counteroffensive is making inroads into Russian-controlled regions following referendums last week that the international community has widely dismissed as fraudulent and a sham. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says this round of military aid will ensure Ukrainian forces are trained and equipped to defend their country over the long haul. Today's package includes four HIMARS, 32 howitzers, 200 mine-resistant vehicles, and hundreds of thousands of rounds of artillery and mortar ammunition. Those advanced rocket systems, or HIMARS, have become a key tool in Ukraine's ability to strike bridges that Russia uses to supply its troops, enabling Ukrainian forces to retake Russian-held territory. On Wall Street, stocks ended higher. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston police say a student who was shot this morning outside of Dorchester's Jeremiah Burke High School is now in stable condition. Investigators say he was shot by another student. Here's WBUR's Carrie Young. Safety officials with Boston Public Schools say the scene at the school is safe after it went into lockdown around 9.30 a.m. following the shooting. Superintendent Mary Skipper says officials are now focused on addressing student trauma. There's a lot of work to be done with the students who have just experienced what they've experienced. And this happens again and again and too much. I've been in this for almost 30 years and too many times. So our work right now is to support the students that are in the building. Mayor Michelle Wu and Boston public safety officials say today's incident was another unacceptable example of gun violence in the city. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard last month without notice by Florida's governor are expected to be placed in transitional housing this week. The Baker administration says 35 of the 49 people remain in temporary shelter at Joint Base Cape Cod in Bourne. They're working with case managers to find housing. 14 of the migrants have already left for opportunities in and outside of Massachusetts. A temporary shelter is expected to be closed by this weekend, the one in Bourne. The entire Massachusetts congressional delegation is calling on the Biden administration to release heating aid money soon. The delegation has written to the Division of Energy Assistance today, calling for money to begin arriving a few weeks earlier than usual so families can get help before temperatures significantly drop. The state is in line for $37 million in heating aid money from the government funding package the president signed on Friday. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023, the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. And Gloucester Stage with The Thin Place, a haunting new play by Lucas Nath. Part seance, part ghost story. Through October 23rd, tickets at gloucesterstage.com. 
Windy and raw weather continues tonight and tomorrow. Look for overnight lows about 54, close to where the mercury is now. Tomorrow should be much like today with highs near 58 degrees. This is WBUR 57 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hurricane Ian has now claimed at least 100 lives, and it left a bill, tens of billions of dollars in property damage. Now, some of that will be covered by insurance, but insurance in Florida was already in a tough situation before the hurricane. Six private property insurers went insolvent earlier this year, and many people in the path of the storm do not have flood insurance. Mark Friedlander is is here from the Insurance Information Institute. He's based in Florida. Hey, Mark. Thank you so much for having me today. So this is a big problem. Um, of its many parts, let me focus you on on two. There's there's homeowners insurance, property insurance, and then there's flood insurance. That is a relevant distinction here. Explain. Well, a storm of the magnitude of Hurricane Ian will bring significant property losses, both from wind and water, and that's why it's so important to have flood insurance in addition to property insurance. Most likely we we might see 40 to 50% of the losses caused by flood. And unfortunately only about 18% of Florida homeowners have flood at this point. Now we look at the coastal counties that were hit hardest with the storm surge. The good news is on average, more than 50% of homeowners in those counties have flood coverage. That's really good. But we go inland, say the Metro Orlando area that also suffered catastrophic flooding, less than 5% on average have coverage. Okay, so just to be crystal clear, if I have a home and it gets walloped by a hurricane, the wind damage is covered by my homeowner's insurance, but the water damage is not? Depends on the type of water damage. Because, for example, say your roof blew off and it rained in your home and destroyed everything inside the house. That is a property insurance claim from your home policy. If the water rises up or, say, the storm surge that we saw last week, it comes from the ground up, that is a flood claim. And why? Why why not just make it easy? I have a home. I want to insure it. Why not have my homeowner's insurance just cover whatever may come along to damage it? If every home insurance policy included flood coverage, nobody could afford to buy it. If it was an all-inclusive package, it would be an unreasonable cost. When you talk to people who live on a coast who do not have flood insurance, what do they tell you about why? The general comment is too expensive. But, you know, we look at the equation here. We think from a financial perspective, it's a big mistake because a flood could devastate a family financially. They could destroy your home. Just look at how many homes have been destroyed by storm surge from Hurricane Ian. That's a complete loss. Do you have the funds to rebuild your home out of pocket? Because that's the only way you're going to recover. FEMA has grants available. They're very small. A FEMA grant is not insurance. It's not a replacement. (laughs) 
Let me turn you to the other prong of this, to property insurance. I mentioned six property insurers went insolvent this year. Why? What's going on? What we've been facing in Florida for many years is a man-made crisis, nothing to do with hurricanes. For several years, we've had a combination of rampant roof replacement claim schemes where unscrupulous contractors go door to door, scamming homeowners into thinking they need to replace their roof when they don't. And then you have related excessive litigation filed against insurers. For example, when the insurance company rejects this bogus claim from this contractor, they get sued. And that leads to endless levels of lawsuits. We've had over 100,000 lawsuits on average in Florida in the past two years related to property claim issues. Huh. So you're describing a challenge that isn't even to do with other storms or massive numbers of claims. This is about scams and litigation. Florida accounts for roughly 80% of all property claim lawsuits in the U.S. We're on pace actually for about 130,000 suits this year. We've got a real problem on our hands here. Does all this turbulence with property insurers going insolvent, what impact does it have on people's premiums? How does this affect just ordinary people trying to get insurance, trying to figure out how much they can pay? According to our analysis, Floridians are paying the highest average premium in the U.S. right now, almost triple the U.S. average. Also, Florida homeowners are seeing average increases across the state at about 33% versus the U.S. average of 9%. It's getting to the point where the insurance crisis in Florida is going to impact a booming real estate market. You buy a home, you can't close on the home because you can't find affordable insurance. That's what we're coming to here in the state. Mark Friedlander with the Insurance Information Institute in Florida. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me today. Infectious disease doctors are urging Americans to get their flu shots. And that's because the virus looks like it could make a comeback in the U.S. this flu season. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has the story. The flu wasn't much of a problem the last two years because of all the masking, social distancing, and other things people did to protect themselves against COVID-19. But the flu hit Australia and some other countries hard during the Southern Hemisphere's winter this year, and what happens south of the equator is often a harbinger of what's to come for the U.S. Here's Dr. William Schaffner from Vanderbilt University at a briefing today. So if you wanted a hint of what might happen here, and you wanted yet another reason to be vaccinated, there it is. So perhaps a moderately severe influenza season is on the way. In fact, the CDC says the flu has already started spreading in some parts of the U.S. But officials are worried that too few people will get their flu shots, in part because of all the anti-vaccine sentiment stirred up by the pandemic. A new survey by the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases found that only about half of adults say they plan to get a flu shot. That includes only one in five people at high risk from the flu. Patsy Sinchfield is president of the foundation. Flu is not just a bad cold. In fact, the words just and flu should never be in the same sentence. Flu can cause mild to severe symptoms life-threatening complications, including hospitalization and death, even in children and adults. 
but flu vaccination rates have never been all that great and have dropped among pregnant people and children even though they are at high risk from the flu. Doctors are especially worried about very young children this year because most have never been exposed to the flu. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Vaccine coverage for children six months to 17 years last season was 58%, a nearly six percentage point decrease from the 2019-20 flu season and the lowest flu vaccination coverage we have seen in children in the last eight seasons. And because the coronavirus could surge again this fall and winter, too, officials worry that a long-feared twindemic could hit the country. So officials are urging people to get both a flu shot and a new COVID booster this month to make sure they're protected from both viruses through the winter. Rob Stein, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We know trees can help address climate change. A forest sucks carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That can be sold as a carbon credit to companies looking to offset their environmental impact. But the way those credits are calculated has long been scrutinized, and two groups want to put focus on urban forests. Bellamy Palethorpe of KNKX explains. This is the sound of carbon credits being made at an urban forest north of Seattle. The Mountains to Sound Greenway Trust recently cleared out two and a half acres of invasive weeds here and planted nearly 2,000 trees. Restoration Projects Manager Dan Hintz is grinning ear to ear as he looks up at a fast-growing black cottonwood, admiring how it soaks up carbon pollution. You can kind of see some of those really, really big leaves at the top of the tree there that are just soaking up sunlight, you know, going through the photosynthesis process, and through that, taking a lot of carbon dioxide out of the air. The project is similar to many the group has done over the years, but this one is certified by a carbon registry for the service the new trees are providing, removing carbon from the atmosphere over the next 25 years. A lot of the project funding you get for sites like this, you know, is maybe only for three or four years, but to have these credits coming in over a handful of years throughout that 25-year process will generate revenue for us to continue to maintain and take care of the site. He has to monitor it and provide data to earn those credits over the life of the contract. A certain number of trees is expected to die. If the rest grow well, the value of the credits goes up, and their sales fund the conservation work. A Seattle-based nonprofit called City Forest Credits is the registry that calculated how much carbon is absorbed here. While the bigger registries tend to capitalize on large rural projects, City Forest Credits focuses exclusively on smaller urban forestry projects. Mark McPherson is the founder and executive director. Unlike almost every other kind of carbon credit, these are credits that have a community impact. I mean, these are right where people live and breathe recreate, work, and there's a place for a smaller volume, really valuable and hopefully higher price credit. 
That vision was realized in June when the credits for this growing forest and 12 other projects fetched some of the highest prices ever for carbon capture. A company called Regen Network Development paid more than a million dollars to buy up all of the city forest credits available. That was nearly double the going rate for rural forest carbon credits. Regen is a blockchain company. It uses decentralized computer networks to provide permanent records that can't be altered. Carbon markets have been rife with questions about accountability. Regen's founders think blockchain technology can create more trust. They're building a new marketplace focused on smaller projects like urban forests. Anyone with questions about the credits can find the answers, says the company's Sarah Baxendell. All of the credit information, the science methodology information is both transparent and publicly available because all blockchain information is a permanent public record of anything that is added onto a blockchain. How much value they've added will become clear once the new Regen Marketplace launches around October 10th. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy Palethorpe in Seattle. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, remembering Loretta Lynn, who brought the realities of life for working-class women to country songwriting. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by University of New England, Maine's largest private university, on campuses in Portland and coastal Biddeford, and online, une.edu. And the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Performances start October 14th. Game two of a three-game series tonight at Fenway Park for the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays. Nathan Navaldi gets the nod for Boston. The Sox come from behind victory last night, gave them a winning record at home this season, 41 wins, 38 losses. In the forecast, going to be chilly at Fenway Park tonight. Some showers lasting into the evening. Overnight lows just about 54 degrees. Then for tomorrow, look for more clouds, more winds, more rain as well. High temperatures in the upper 50s. 57 degrees now in Boston at 449. WBUR supporters include the MBTA, hosting an employment fair October 13th at Boston City Hall Plaza, 10 a.m. until 2 p.m. Start a career with purpose, upward mobility, and generous benefits. For more information on how you can join in building a better tea, visit mbta.com careers. And Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for every everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. Yes, the dollar is stronger, but companies that import into this economy just ain't seeing it. Kind of a common excuse will be, well, we're, we're charging you the same we charged you two years ago. Yes, the USD is stronger. However, we already factored that in, of course. I'm Kai Rizdal, different dollar, same prices next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 630 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Country music icon Loretta Lynn died today. She was 90 years old, and her family says she died peacefully in her sleep. Loretta Lynn brought unparalleled candor about the domestic realities of working-class women to country songwriting, and she taught those who came after her to speak their minds, too. When a movie was made about her life, Lynn became a prominent pop culture figure, but she never compromised her down-home sensibilities. WNXP's Julie Haidt has this appreciation. One of the biggest songs of Loretta Lynn's career proudly recounted her hard scrabble background. Len never tired of telling stories of her upbringing in a remote coal mining community in the Appalachian Mountains of eastern Kentucky. In a 2000 NPR interview, she recalled how her parents, Melvin and Clara Webb, did whatever it took to feed their eight children, even if it meant accepting a relative's gift of a stolen chicken. There were many times we went to bed hungry and wake up in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, with smell chicken cooking. Mommy get us up and let us eat and go back to bed. Loretta Webb was barely a teenager when she started a family of her own with a 21-year-old former soldier, Oliver Lynn, better known as Mooney or Doolittle. They wasted no time having the first four of their six children and migrated to Washington State. It was there that her husband heard her bedtime lullabies and pushed her to start performing publicly. In a 2010 interview with WHYY's Fresh Air, Loretta Lynn insisted she wouldn't have done it otherwise. I wouldn't get out in front of people. I wouldn't, you know, I was really bashful and I wouldn't, I would have never sang in front of anybody. Once her husband started scrounging up paying gigs for her, Loretta taught herself to write songs, says country music historian and journalist Robert Orman. She got a copy of Country Song Roundup, and this is a magazine that has country lyrics printed in it, along with stories about the stars. And she would read the country lyrics in the magazine, and she'd go, well, that's nothing, I can do that, because she could and had been. Lynn and her husband drove around the radio stations. She would introduce herself to the DJs and try to charm them into spinning a record. The couple's efforts had begun to get her notice when they landed in Nashville in 1960. Artists like Jim Reeves and Patsy Cline, who became Lynn's mentor, were having a lot of success with a lush, pop-sweetened production style known as the Nashville Sound. Lynn worked with Cline's producer, Owen Bradley, but hung on to her unsoftened twang. My man. Country songs had often portrayed hardship from male perspectives, but Lynn wasn't afraid to spell out the indignities she endured in her marriage or the double standards she saw other women facing when it came to divorce, pregnancy, and birth control. There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. Len found that Nashville wasn't accustomed to that kind of frankness. I tell you, 
When I come to Nashville, I didn't really know that people did not say what they thought. I've always been a person to say what I think. Fellow Eastern Kentucky songwriter Angelina Presley was raised on her mother's Loretta Lynn records and recognizes what they must have meant to women of earlier generations. I'm positive that there probably were many, many women in that time, especially in the country, who thought, I'm not really allowed to say anything if my husband wants to drink. He works all day, he deserves to drink at night and come home and do what he wants. And I'll clean the house and raise the kids. And she said, no, it's not okay. And it's okay for you to say it's not okay. No, don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. Just stay out there on the town and see what you can find. Cause if you want that kind of love, well, you don't need none of mine. So don't come home a drinking with loving on your mind. I feel like it contributed a lot to the feminist movement, especially in rural America, because I feel like she was the voice. Even if she never spoke out actively as a feminist, her songs certainly did. 39 of those songs became top 10 country hits on the Billboard charts. And in 1972, Loretta Lynn was the first woman named Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association. The only thing, I'm real happy, but the only thing that I'm kind of sad about is my husband is gone hunting. He couldn't make it back in to share my happiness with me. Thank you. Their relationship was complicated, but they remained married until Doolittle's death in 1996. And Loretta made sure her fans knew that her long-lasting musical partnership with Conway Twitty was all business. Lynn continued performing and recording into the new millennium, attracting younger audiences through her collaboration with rocker Jack White. But it was essential to Lynn's enduring appeal that she never lost touch with her identity as a simultaneously modern and down-to-earth country woman. Journalist Robert Orman saw her communicate that to crowds throughout her career. This idea that I might be up here on this stage singing this song, but I'm not better than you. I am you. And that's kind of the message, you know? And I think that's a really, that kind of humility is a really powerful and good thing. That message is so, so powerful. And it always informed her songwriting. I like real life because that's what we're doing today. And I think that's why people bought my records, because they're living in this world. And so am I. So I see what's going on, and I, I grab it. Loretta Lynn's gutsiness comes through just as clearly today in the music she left behind. For NPR News, I'm Julie Height in Nashville. Close to 250 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize, and workers will sit down with company lawyers this month to start negotiating their union contracts. But momentum for the union is slowing. That's due, in part, to a move by Starbucks to offer new benefits, including expanded training and relaxation of the dress code, even some wage increases, offering those benefits to non-union stores only. And that's hard to combat because we don't have anything right now. Wake up with Morning Edition tomorrow. You can listen live on your radio or ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, a local Culligan specialist can provide in-home water tests and custom recommendations to treat the unique attributes of a home's water. More at Culligan.com. And from the American Lung Association and Pfizer, working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org slash pneumococcal. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. A thick cover of clouds today. Strong winds continuing into the evening with showers moving in and out. Tonight should be windy again, right about 54 degrees for a low, not too much lower than it is right now. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Overcast with rain from time to time. Strong winds. Highs about 58 degrees. Should see the sunshine in at last on Thursday. Highs about 68 degrees. The warmest day of the week maybe Friday in the low 70s. Tonight, the Red Sox played the penultimate game of the season with Nathan Navaldi going up against Jeffrey Springs with the Tampa Bay Rays. 7-10 is the first pitch at Fenway. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today on whether a congressional map drawn by Alabama Republican legislators violated the Voting Rights Act. It gave black voters, who make up about 27 percent of the state, the majority in just one of the state's seven congressional districts. It's Tuesday, October 4th, and this is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Elon Musk tells Twitter he's willing to buy the company after all. Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for more oversight of the popular banking service Zelle. In a new report, Warren says the platform is rife with fraud and theft. And transgender prison inmates are usually placed in facilities that do not align with their gender identity. But some are now getting help from gender advocates. I was so happy that somebody would fight for me because nobody's ever fought for me. More on one trans woman who's seeking to transfer to a women's prison coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The death toll in Florida after Hurricane Ian is now at least 100. As NPR's Russell Lewis reports from Fort Myers, search and rescue efforts have been complicated due to the massive destruction along the coast. Hurricane Ian's powerful storm surge wrecked neighborhoods big and small, obliterating homes, crushing cars, and altering the landscape, making it unrecognizable in some areas. Lee County Sheriff Carmine Marcino says that's made their job very difficult, particularly on Fort Myers Beach. We have a difficult time identifying property at times because the property is no longer there. It's not existent. And that's what takes time. When we have a home that's standing and we can walk up to it and we can search it, it's a lot easier than something that's unidentifiable or doesn't exist. Marcino says the active search, rescue and recovery is expected to last several more days. 
Russell Lewis, NPR News, Fort Myers, Florida. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is vowing to never negotiate with Russia so long as Vladimir Putin is president. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haidar reports the move comes after Putin claimed parts of Ukraine are now forever Russian. Zelensky had been asking for a face-to-face meeting with Putin since getting elected in 2019. Even for the first several months of war, that was his top demand. Well, that meeting never happened, and for now, it won't. After Russia forcibly annexed four Ukrainian regions last week, Ukraine's National Security Council passed a resolution calling diplomacy, quote, impossible. Zelensky has now signed a declaration to that effect, arguing peace is only possible with regime change in Russia. Back in August, Ukraine's military signed a cooperation agreement with an insurgent group allegedly operating inside of Russia. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kyiv. Infectious disease doctors are urging people to get their flu shots early, warning that influenza will likely be back this year and could cause a bad flu season. NPR's Rob Stein has the story. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases say it's especially important for people to get their flu shots this year. That's because after virtually disappearing the last two years because of the pandemic, the flu looks like it could hit the U.S. early and hard this year. That's what happened in some countries during the Southern Hemisphere's winter this year. And what happened south of the equator often predicts what will happen in the U.S. At the same time, COVID-19 could surge again this fall and winter which means a long-feared twindemic could strain the health system. So doctors are urging people to get both a flu shot and a new COVID-19 booster this month. Rob Stein, NPR News. Today, one of those days that don't come around all that often on the financial markets. The Dow soared 825 points. The Nasdaq jumped 360 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A now former Northeastern University employee has been arrested for what he said was an explosion at the school last month. Federal prosecutors say Jason Duhame faces charges of making false statements related to the September bomb hoax. Duhame worked as a lab director at Northeastern. Police say he claimed he was injured when a plastic storage case opened at the lab exploded. Investigators found no evidence of any explosive device and say Duhame's injuries were not consistent with the blast. He's expected to appear in court in Massachusetts at a later date. Boston police say a student at Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester is in stable condition after he was shot by another student this morning. It happened outside the school building about 9.30. Boston Police Superintendent Felipe Colon says that the suspect has been arrested. Shortly after the incident, a description of the suspect was broadcasted. Additional officers responding to the scene located an individual matching that description. That individual was positively ID'd as the suspect. A subsequent, subsequent search of the area led to the recovery of a firearm. Jeremiah Burke High School was immediately placed in lockdown, but that's now been lifted. Search and rescue workers, Red Cross volunteers, and others from Massachusetts are in Florida helping after Hurricane Ian. Rockland resident Brendan Galpin is currently in Fort Myers. He drove from Massachusetts to help his parents who were trapped in their home. The street got flooded. Uh, you know, their first floor got flooded. I think they had probably five feet of water, and they were on their top floor and that started taking on water. So they were worried they were going to have to go on onto the roof, you know, in the hurricane to get out of it. Galpin says his parents' home now has electricity. Many remain without power, gas, or drinkable water. 
Potential launch dates for retail and online sports betting may be voted on this week by the State Gaming Commission. The commission has said it wants to implement legal sports betting without any unnecessary delay and without harming consumer protection or gaming integrity. Governor Charlie Baker signed the state's betting law nearly two months ago. Voting on potential sports betting launch dates is on the commission's agenda for Thursday, but the commission could also decide to delay that vote. In the forecast, 55 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures should barely fall overnight tonight, about 53, 54 for a low. Cloudy, windy, and rainy overnight. Tomorrow, cloudy, windy, and rainy once again. Highs only reaching the mid to upper 50s. This is WBUR. It's 5.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com. With a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. And DuckDuckGo. Committed to making privacy online simple, used by tens of millions, they offer internet privacy with one download. DuckDuckGo. Privacy simplified at DuckDuckGo.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today in a case that could further decimate the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. It was passed twice. It, it was passed and twice renewed by Congress. It protects racial minorities from discrimination in voting. In the last decade, the court's conservative majority has struck down or neutered key provisions of the law. And today, the question was whether to deliver another blow. NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. At issue was Alabama's congressional redistricting plan adopted by the Republican state legislature after the 2020 census. More than a quarter of the state's population is African American, but in only one out of seven districts do minority voters have a realistic chance of electing the candidate of their choice. In January, a three-judge federal court panel, including two Trump appointees, ruled unanimously that under the Voting Rights Act, Alabama should create not just one, but two two compact congressional districts with a majority or close to a majority of black voters. The state appealed to the Supreme Court where today Solicitor General Edmund LaCour contended that unless there is evidence of intentional race discrimination, congressional districts must be drawn without considerations of race. Justice Kagan interrupted. We once uh, long ago said that intent was required And Congress immediately slapped us down and said, no, we didn't mean that. Indeed, Congress amended the Voting Rights Act in 1982 to make clear that the voting rights law was aimed at eliminating discriminatory results. Here, the lower court ruled that Alabama's original map had the effect of diluting the political power of minority voters by lumping a supermajority of them into a single district and spreading the remaining minority voters out over the other districts. It's known as packing and cracking. Kagan said today's case is a classic voter dilution claim. And you're asking us essentially to cut back substantially on our 40 years of precedent and to make this too extremely difficult to prevail on. So what's left? Justice Jackson pointed to the history of the 14th and 15th Amendments enacted after the Civil War to guarantee political power to formerly enslaved people. When I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way. Um, I don't think 
that the historical record establishes that the founders uh, believed that race neutrality or race blindness was required. But Alabama's liqueur stuck to his guns, arguing that the lower court decision requiring the creation of a second majority black district is unconstitutional because race was the predominant factor in its creation. In contrast, he argued, the state legislature's original map with only one majority black district is race neutral. Rebutting that argument was Duel Ross, senior counsel for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who cited the factual findings of the lower court. There's nothing race neutral about Alabama's map. The Black Belt is a historic and extremely poor community of substantial significance. Yet Alabama's map cracks that community and allows white black voting to deny black voters the opportunity to elect representation responsive to their needs. Where Alabama's liqueur argued that the creation of the second district would break up the Gulf part of the state into two dissimilar districts, the NAACP's lawyer countered that the legislature had no difficulty in simultaneously creating essentially the same two districts but for the state school board. For the most part, the court's three liberals dominated today's arguments. The six conservatives didn't tip their hands, though their records indicate they likely do have a hand to play. They probably won't adopt the state's relatively extreme position of racial neutrality in provisions of the Voting Rights Act, provisions which, after all, were written to ensure greater political power for long-suppressed racial minorities. But as election law expert Rick Hassan observes, Alabama may well get something almost as good, namely a new legal framework that makes it much harder for minority plaintiffs to get full representation in congressional and other legislative districts. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. When transgender people are arrested, they are frequently placed in prisons that do not align with their gender identity. Transgender women are often placed in men's facilities and trans men in women's facilities. And some are now taking legal action to try to get moved to prisons that match their gender identity. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz has been reporting on the experience of incarcerated transgender people in the United States and joins us now. Hi there. Hi. So Jacqueline, what arguments are you hearing from trans inmates who are fighting for this change? Yes, so in practice, most state prisons place trans inmates in facilities based on sex at birth or physical genitalia. And that's according to inmates and lawyers I've talked to. And lawsuits that have been filed across the country say this violates constitutional protections against cruel and unusual punishment, among other things. And there's no doubt this issue is incredibly complicated. But for many people, it really all comes down to health and safety. Studies show that trans inmates in prison face a higher level of sexual assault, harassment, and discrimination compared to the general population. And Jacqueline, today you've brought us the story of one of these people. Can you tell us about her? Yes, I met with a trans woman in Minnesota who shared her own experience with this issue. Her name is Christina Lusk. She's currently in prison in Minnesota's Moose Lake facility, and that's a men's prison. I just want to caution that this story does contain graphic details of sexual assault and suicide. Lusk has blonde hair that runs past her shoulders. She's 57 and has been inside this men's facility for three years now. When I met her, we spoke from behind a glass partition. From a young age, Christina Lusk felt different. It wasn't until 2008 that she was able to put her feelings into words to a psychiatrist. 
they told her she had gender dysphoria. That's a medical term used to describe this deep discomfort caused by a mismatch between a person's biological sex and their gender identity. With her doctor's help, Lusk started taking hormones, but she still battled her demons. You know, I was in and out of jails and stuff, and it was all over drinking and, you know, trying to make myself feel better about myself. A cycle emerged. She'd get treatment for alcoholism, then relapse. She eventually started taking and selling meth. I know it's wrong, and I told myself I'm going to get busted. I just knew it, but I continued to do it anyway. In December 2018, she was arrested, just two months before she was expecting to have a long-awaited gender confirmation surgery. She pled guilty in early 2019. At this point, Lusk had gone through several other gender-affirming procedures. Still, she was placed in a men's facility. She asked to be transferred to a woman's prison called Shakopee. And, of course, they said, that's not going to happen. It's never happened. It won't happen. At Moose Lake, she was placed in a cell with several men, where she says she was sexually assaulted. She told me that she never reported this to prison leaders because she believed that they would do nothing about it. That's when I uh, was going to attempt suicide. And I thought about my family and, you know, and everything. And, you know, this is how I wanted to go, you know, and I stopped. State prison authorities said had they known about Lusk's assault, they would have investigated it. She eventually reported her suicide attempt to an officer and was placed in her own cell. She still deals with harassment and discrimination from both fellow inmates and officers. Is it worth it? I think to myself, is this worth it? You know, to feel this pain. Um, you know, why, why was I born this way? You know, they say, they say God doesn't make mistakes. Well, then I was meant to be this way. She wrote to prison officials asking to be moved to a woman's facility and told her defense lawyer about her harassment. She was eventually put in touch with the advocacy group Gender Justice. They said they would file a lawsuit on her behalf against the Minnesota Department of Corrections. When somebody told me that they would help me, my world changed. And I was so happy that I had a voice and that somebody would fight for me because nobody's ever fought for me. The lawsuit, which was filed in June, says the Minnesota Department of Corrections is discriminating against Lusk and that she shouldn't have been housed with men. Lusk also wants the judge to rule that the DOC denying her gender-affirming surgery is unconstitutional. Other advocacy groups have filed similar suits on the behalf of other trans inmates across the country, some, like those filed in New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C., have successfully changed prison policies for trans inmates. That's reporting from NPR's Jacqueline Diaz, who is back with us now. And Jacqueline, as you pointed out, this is all incredibly complicated, and uh, I would imagine that there's also some opposition to housing inmates based on their gender identity. Definitely. Take, for example, California. The state changed its laws and started moving trans women to women's facilities, but a group called the Women's Liberation Front has sued to try to block that move. 
They say they're concerned about the potential for assault by inmates transferred from men's facilities. But other people I spoke to, like Christina, don't see that as a significant risk. They just want to move somewhere safe without fear of being attacked or hurt in prison. Jacqueline, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you. That is NPR's Jacqueline Diaz. She's been reporting on the experience of imprisoned trans inmates. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three digits, 988. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, we'll connect the dots from climate to migration to political extremism. That's still ahead on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive PhD in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. On Wall Street, stocks rocketed again. The Dow rose about two and three quarters percent, or 825 points, to close at 30,316. The index has grown more than 1,500 points this week. S&P picked up more than three percent today to finish the day at 37.91. The Nasdaq rose three and a third percent to close at 11,176. A local battery making company has raised nearly a half billion dollars in a recent round of funding. Officials with Somerville-based Form Energy said today. The investments will go toward the manufacture of batteries for clean energy storage. The company plans to open a full-scale battery manufacturing facility. It says it'll announce the location next year. Marketplace has all the business news of the day coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Globe, presenting Boston's all-documentary film festival in theaters and online October 12th through 16th. The 8th Annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversation with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets available at globe.com slash filmfest. Cloudy, windy, and damp this evening and tonight and tomorrow as well. Tonight's lows staying in the 50s. Tomorrow's highs just a few degrees higher. Lots of clouds around tomorrow. Looks as if the sunshine's holding out into the last few days of the week. This is WBUR 55 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Today we're launching a project that connects the dots across three big stories. Our co-host Ari Shapiro is starting a reporting trip through three countries, and it tries to answer this question. What is the connection between climate change, global migration, and far-right politics? Ari, I'm excited to hear about this trip. Thanks for coming in to talk to us about it. It's an honor to be on your show, Juana. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Where did the idea for this project come from? I realized that lots of the most ambitious projects I've done as a host of All Things Considered have returned to those same three topics. Like on climate change, I've covered sinking islands under rising seas in India. I've gone to UN climate summits in Scotland and France. 
When it comes to global migration, I've covered the exodus of Venezuelans through Colombia and Syrians going to Europe. And then, of course, we're always doing stories about the rise of far-right politicians. And so I, for almost a year now, have been thinking about how can we tie these three things together, connect the dots, and show how each one influences the other. Yeah. As you think about your reporting, is there somebody that you've met in your reporting before or your research who captures what you're hoping to get at on this trip? Yeah, we reached out to this World Bank climate researcher named Aram Tal because she's an expert on climate change. She's from Senegal in West Africa. And so in addition to studying all of the numbers and figures and charts, she and her family know that the coastline is shrinking from rising seas. They know that farms are becoming unharvestable because of droughts and floods. But when I was talking to her about her research, I didn't realize that she also has a personal connection to this. She told me about her nephew, an 18-year-old named Amadou. To the whole family's astonishment, he disappeared one night and we looked for him. He couldn't be found. And it turns out that he took by night one of these boats headed to, to Europe in the night. Except Amadou didn't stay on the boat. The captain warned that there was heavy rain offshore and it could be dangerous. And so Amadou disembarked and the boat left without him and he returned to his family a few days later. Everybody else who jumped on that, who got onto that boat, never came back. And they were confirmed to have to have to have sank in, in the Atlantic. Oh my goodness. So he he escaped. But you always wonder what if he had actually taken that boat. What an incredible story. Mm-hmm. Ari, do we know how many people are going to be forced from their homes by climate change? We don't. And even though there's been a lot of research into this, the challenge is there's really no definition of a climate migrant. The vast majority of people who are forced from their homes by climate change will stay in their own country or at least their region. But climate change can be what one researcher, Kaylee Ober of Refugees International, described to me as a vulnerability multiplier, which is to say if somebody is already under pressure from poverty or corruption, climate change might be the final straw. And so depending on how you define a climate migrant, the numbers can vary widely. But where human rights advocates see climate change as a vulnerability multiplier, far-right politicians see it as a threat multiplier. And that's where the politics piece of this comes in. Okay, and this is the part that I'm curious about. How do you tie in far-right politics to these other trends we've been talking about, climate change and migration? Well, all over the world, we see politicians campaigning on a platform of stopping migration. I mean, remember, Donald Trump launched his 2016 presidential campaign with a racist claim that Mexico is sending rapists to the United States. And this year, from Sweden to Italy and beyond, we have seen far-right parties win elections on promises to stop migration. My friend, this is a huge undertaking. How are you going (laughs) to tackle all of this? And how can I follow along? How can we all follow along? There are a lot of routes we could have taken. This is happening all over the world. So, you know, we could have gone from Central America through Mexico to the U.S., or we could have gone from Bangladesh west. We've decided to start in the Sahel region of Africa. We're going to be in Senegal up to Morocco, and then on to Spain. And the stories are going to air in November when the UN Climate Summit takes place in Egypt. But we are keeping a blog in real time, so you can follow along with our travels at npr.org and see who we're meeting and what we're learning as we experience it. That's our co-host, Ari Shapiro, and you'll hear lots more of his reporting on this project in the weeks to come. Ari, safe travels. Thanks, Juana. Okay, billionaire Elon Musk seems to have changed his mind again about Twitter less than two weeks before a high-stakes trial. Twitter sued Musk for trying to back out of a deal to buy the social platform for about $44 billion. There were hearings, dozens of depositions, thousands of pages of discovery, 
And now Musk says he is willing to go through with the deal after all. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon is covering this. Hey there. Hello. So hello, Whiplash. What, what do we know about Elon Musk's change of heart? Yeah, a uh, few details so far. Yesterday, he was tweeting about a peace deal in Ukraine today and about face, and suddenly he wants to buy Twitter again. We do know that Musk sent a letter to Twitter that said he was willing to go through with the deal, and that means paying $54.20 a share, or about $44 billion. And that seemed like a lowball offer back in April, but then tech stocks had a rough couple of quarters, and now that price is actually a great deal for Twitter. That is why Twitter stock closed up about 22% today. Huh. Did this take just everyone by surprise? You by surprise? The whole case has been a surprise. I mean, even from the beginning when Musk first said he was going to buy Twitter, everything that followed has been highly unusual, except maybe to corporate lawyers like Professor Ann Lipton of Tulane University. In some ways, it's the most natural thing in the world. The fact that just has been so unprecedented in a sort of colorful way, you know, kind of makes people forget the legal fundamentals. Cases settle just before they go to trial. They settle just before the top people are deposed. Or in this unusual case, just a few days after Musk's private messages were made public, they show how impulsive he was about this acquisition. Also, this offer comes just a couple days before Musk is scheduled to sit for a deposition. In the end, what's surprising is that Musk is now willing to pay the original full price. Okay, so he says he'll pay the original full price. Twitter wants him to pay up. So is this done deal? Game over? We're good to go? Uh, no, this has been a knockdown drag out fight, and Twitter has every reason to be suspicious that this is some sort of gambit from Musk to delay the trial. A company spokesperson sent out a brief statement that said the intention of the company is to close the transaction at the agreed upon price. It's likely Twitter will ask the court for reassurances that Musk really means it and stipulations so he won't try to back out this time. Stipulations. Elaborate on that. There has been so much drama in this case. Remember, Musk sought out Twitter, not the other way around. Once Twitter agreed to sell, Musk almost immediately started badmouthing it in public, questioning how many real people use the platform as opposed to, say, bots or spam accounts, and finally saying he didn't want it. As of right now, the trial date is still October 17th, and the parties have to, until then to agree to a settlement. Uh, in the 30 seconds or so we have left, what does this say about Elon Musk as a business person? I mean, not that he's asking, but none of this leaves me burning to cut a deal with Elon Musk. Well, he's still known as an ambitious, hardworking, successful businessman who can raise a lot of money really quick. But his behavior throughout all of this might have scared off some of those investors and embarrassed his rich and powerful Silicon Valley friends, maybe even hurt his own interests. The irony is that he made Twitter look pretty bad. And now he's very likely to own it. And PR's Raquel Maria Dillon, thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, former President Donald Trump is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene in a dispute over classified documents the FBI removed from his estate, Mar-a-Lago. And tonight on Marketplace, as the dollar gets stronger, that usually means imports become cheaper. But some businesses are seeing just the opposite.
We import from Italy and Spain, from Israel, and we continue to have price increases because they are in the middle of an energy crisis because of everything going on with Russia and Ukraine. The real cost of importing tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. In the forecast, rain overnight tonight. Look for temperatures just about 55 degrees, which is where it is right now. And then for tomorrow, more clouds, more wind, temperatures in the upper 50s once again. Hundreds of Ukrainian children are adopted by Americans every year. However, Russia's invasion brought that to a halt and turned prospective adoptions for the children into temporary visits. They just can't get the schooling that they need. Most of the kids there are crying because they want their families. The Adoption Waiting Game, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition, 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Nearly one week after Hurricane Ian hit Florida with one of the strongest storms ever, hundreds of thousands of people remain without power. The governor there says state and local utility companies hope to have 95 percent of customers fully back online by the end of the week. Governor Ron DeSantis says they are setting up command centers at each location to get power back up as soon as possible. So Lee County has 54 percent of the of the accounts restored. I mentioned Pine Island. We're making the effort there. That is going to take a little longer, but we got to get people in there. Governor DeSantis also plans to have the bridge that connects Pine Island to the mainland functioning so residents can get back and forth. The death toll, meanwhile, in Florida has reached at least 100 people. Russian President President Vladimir Putin is warning Moscow could turn to its nuclear arsenal to defend lands in Ukraine, he claims, as Russian. Many nuclear experts believe the risk remains low that Putin would use a nuclear weapon. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the U.S. military says it's keeping close watch. Nuclear expert and Harvard professor Matthew Bunn estimates there's perhaps a 10 to 20 percent chance Russia could use such a weapon. He says an attack would likely involve a low-yield tactical nuke that might be designed to intimidate Ukraine as much as gain a battlefield advantage. I think the biggest factor in the use of nuclear weapons is the fear they provoke. Putin might hope that he could coerce the Ukrainians into accepting his terms. Meanwhile, a senior U.S. defense official says the U.S. is not seeing any Russian moves that compel the U.S. to change its own nuclear posture. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished broadly higher on Wall Street. This is NPR. The number of job openings in the U.S. dipped sharply in August. As NPR's Scott Horsley tells us, that's a sign the very tight labor market may be loosening just a bit. The Labor Department says job openings dropped by 10 percent in August from more than 11 million at the start of the month to about 10 million just before Labor Day. There were still far more job openings than unemployed workers to fill those positions, but the mismatch was smaller than it has been in previous months. That's a sign the Federal Reserve's effort to cool the economy and curb inflation with higher interest rates may be having the desired effect. Layoffs are still very low, and the Fed hopes it can put the brakes on the economy without triggering a big jump in unemployment. The Labor Department will offer a more complete look at the job market in September later this week. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. President Biden spoke with Japan's prime minister today after North Korea conducted another ballistic weapons test, Biden condemning Pyongyang's action as destabilizing for the region. 
The missile North Korea tested today flew over Japan and could reach the U.S. territory of Guam. The U.S. now plans to ask the United Nations Security Council to hold an emergency meeting tomorrow on North Korea's latest escalation with its neighbor. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street for the biggest single-day rally in two years. The Dow up 825 points, nearly 3%. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A student at Jeremiah Burke High School in Dorchester is in the hospital after he was shot outside the school building. Investigators say the suspect in the shooting has been located and is also a student at the school. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden says the city and county officials are focused on the investigation and healing at the school. We are uh, together collectively concerned uh, for this community, for the students involved, uh, for the administration. Boston school officials say they have extra staff on hand today to help support students. Police say the injured student is in stable condition. Federal authorities have charged a former Northeastern University employee with planting a fake bomb last month on campus. As WBR's Walter Worthman reports, 45-year-old Jason Duhame of Texas is accused of staging the hoax and making false statements to investigators. Duhame told FBI agents he was hit by a blast of air and sharp objects when he opened the package in his lab. The case also contained a threatening letter. But investigators say they found no burn marks or shrapnel consistent with an explosion. And they found a copy of the letter on Duhame's computer. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins says Duhame's actions affected the entire community. Our city more than most knows all too well that a report or threat of an explosion is a very serious matter and necessitates an immediate and significant law enforcement response given the potential devastation that can ensue. Duhame is no longer employed by Northeastern. He was arrested near his home in Texas. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Two Woburn men face human smuggling and money laundering charges after a federal raid of the restaurants they own this morning. Jesse James Mores and his son Hugo Giovanni Mores are accused of smuggling migrants from Brazil into the U.S., Prosecutors allege the two men employed the migrants at their restaurants and withheld their wages as a fee for bringing them into the country. They own Taste of Brazil and the Doghouse in Woburn. Both men were ordered held after an initial hearing this morning. They entered no plea. A former MIT researcher and professor is the latest recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physics. Anton Zeilinger worked at the university in the late 1970s and early 80s. He's now based in Vienna. MIT physics professor David Kaiser worked with Zeilinger on experiments related to quantum entanglements. That work, studying particle behavior, won Zeilinger the Nobel. Kaiser says there are real-world applications. So the idea is to use quantum entanglement as a resource and build it into real-world uh, technologies. We could distribute, in this case, quantum-protected communications uh, that would be impervious, at least in principle, to any kind of outside hacking. The Nobel Prize was announced this morning. Zeilinger shares it with two other physicists. Boston's 311 app is getting an upgrade. The app lets you tell the city about non-emergency issues that need to be addressed, such as potholes, litter, or parking issues. Boston has released an updated version that makes the app available in 11 languages that are mostly spoken in the city. The previous version was only available in English. And the town of Brookline is cutting back on the 
the number of parking spaces required in developments in certain parts of town. Uh, Town Administrator Chaz Carey says the reduction in required spaces will be in areas where public transit is nearby. Carey says personal vehicle ownership is less common there. In the forecast, a chilly wind, some showers lasting into the evening and overnight tonight and should come back tomorrow. Lows tonight in the mid-50s, just where it is right now. Tomorrow's highs in the mid to upper 50s. And then for Thursday, a stranger in these parts, sunshine, warming to the upper 60s. This is WBUR. It's 537. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Former President Donald Trump is yet again escalating the legal battle over classified documents that he kept at his Mar-a-Lago home. His lawyers have filed an emergency request asking the United States Supreme Court to intervene and to let a special master review some of those documents, which the FBI seized back in August. We're joined now by Steve Vladek, who's a law professor at the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a federal courts expert. Welcome back, Steve. Thanks for having me. So if you can, remind us briefly why the former president's legal team is yet again asking for the special master in this case. Yeah, so, I mean, it's hard to keep track of the 37 layers here. But um, basically, the 11th Circuit, the federal appeals court in Atlanta, had issued a stay, had basically frozen Judge Cannon's order from Labor Day, the order that had required the appointment of a special master and that had blocked and enjoined the Justice Department from relying on, from using the 100 or so classified documents that it obtained during the search at Mar-a-Lago. What the 11th Circuit said in its stay was, you know, Judge Cannon, you shouldn't have blocked DOJ. You should have allowed them to do their thing. And that also had the effect of keeping those 100 or so documents out of Judge Deary's hands, the special master. So what Trump is asking the Supreme Court to do is basically sort of thread the needle. He's not asking the court to once again stop DOJ from doing whatever it's doing. He's just asking the court to also let those documents go back before Judge Deary. In this application, Steve, I understand it is nearly 300 pages long, and you have started to take a look at it. From what you've seen so far, what is your biggest takeaway? I think the biggest takeaway, one is that it's modest, um, right? This is not President Trump asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on anything about the search. This is not President Trump asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on anything about, like, the merits of, you know, his potential criminal exposure for the documents he had at Mar-a-Lago. He's basically asking the Supreme Court for a teeny tiny sliver of relief, which is that the 100 or so classified documents picked up in the search should also, he says, go back before Judge Deary as part of this special master review of the materials. And part of why it's so important to stress how modest this is, is because it's also not clear how President Trump is being harmed by the 11th Circuit's ruling that he's now objecting to, 
which is supposed to be a predicate to get on the Supreme Court to step in in this kind of emergency posture. So it's a very technical argument. It's a very modest argument. And even if it succeeds, it's really not going to change that much on the ground. Okay, so then what are the next steps for the Supreme Court? And how likely would you say that it is that the Trump legal team might get its way here? Yeah, so the application technically goes to Justice Clarence Thomas because he is the assigned circuit justice for all applications coming out of the my, uh, the Atlanta-based federal appeals court. Um, you know, I think Justice Thomas will refer the application to the full court. That is the norm in divisive cases, even if he might be sympathetic to the claims. And then I think the next step would be, once there's been briefing from the Justice Department, for the justices to issue a, you know, a very cryptic ruling want to probably denying the application. I mean, mm. it's really important to stress that this is not a sort of substantive question for the Supreme Court to decide about the validity of the search. It's a technical question about whether the 11th Circuit was in a position at the time it issued its stay to you know, keep some of these documents away from Judge Deary. I'm not sure President Trump has a good claim on the merits, and I think there's an even bigger procedural obstacle, which is why even this court, a court that I think folks expect to be sympathetic to President Trump, I think is very unlikely to side with him here. In the 20 seconds we've got left, anything you can tell us about what this means for a DOJ investigation into what the former president did with these documents? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is it doesn't mean anything. Um, that the most important thing the 11th Circuit did in its ruling was to put that investigation back on course, and nothing the Supreme Court could do on this application is going to stop that. Steve Vladek, professor of law at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much. Thank you. Staying with the courts, today was the second day of testimony in the January 6th seditious conspiracy trial against Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four others with ties to that far-right group. Reminder, this is the most significant Capitol riot trial so far. NPR Justice Correspondent Ryan Lucas is back today at the courthouse. And Ryan, um, how has the government begun to build its case? Well, Rhodes and the other defendants are accused of plotting to use force to block the transfer uh, of presidential power to Joe Biden. And in their opening statement yesterday, the government argued that the defendants concocted a plan for what the government called an armed rebellion to derail that transfer of power. The first witness they called was FBI Special Agent Michael Palian. He was at the Capitol on January 6th, guarding senators in hiding. He later escorted them back to the Senate. And then he became one of the lead agents in the Oath Keepers investigation. He took the stand yesterday, and his testimony continued all day today. What did he say? So prosecutors used Palian to start laying the foundation of this case for the jury. And that means introducing text messages and audio recordings, uh, in this case from November 2020, so the early days of what the Justice Department says was this conspiracy. And that included a message Rhodes sent on November 7th, 2020, the day that most media called the election for Joe Biden. And on that day, Rhodes wrote to a signal chat group, quote, the final defense is us and our rifles. Trump has one last chance right now to stand, but he will need us and our rifles too. We'll need us and our rifles too. Okay. Um, what other ground did the FBI agent cover in his testimony? So Palian also testified about a conference call that Rhodes had on November 9th with around 100 Oath Keepers, including several co-conspirators in this case. And on that call, Rhodes talks about what the Oath Keepers should do now that Biden has been declared the winner. Uh, a tipster provided the FBI a recording of part of that call. Prosecutors played some of it for the jury today. And on that recording, Rhodes, Rhodes talks about how he believes the election was stolen. He talks about the need to show Trump that 
the people, Rhodes says, supported him, that they were willing to fight. And on the call, Rhodes also mentions the Insurrection Act, which he said Trump could have invoked to call up militias to support him. And in the recording, Rhodes says the Insurrection Act would provide the Oath Keepers with legal cover for their actions. And um, he urged people on the call also to be disciplined in their communications to avoid getting charged with conspiracy. Okay. I want to follow up on something you just said, that a tipster mm-hmm. provided a recording of part of the call to the FBI. Do we know details on that? Like, like when that happened? Right. Palian said the tipster reached out to the FBI twice, actually. The first time was on November 20th, 2020, so some six weeks before the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And Palian said the FBI didn't respond to the tipster at that time. It wasn't until March of 2021, so weeks after the Capitol attack, when the tipster contacted the FBI for a second time that the FBI responded. And this gets back to questions about how the FBI and other law enforcement handled, or as critics would say, mishandled or ignored, tips ahead of time that could have helped prevent uh, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. All right. Uh, The defense got to cross-examine. What did they do with it? So Rhodes's attorney, Philip Linder, pointed out that the Oath Keepers attended pro-Trump rallies in Washington, D.C. in November and December. Uh, And Agent Palin testified that the Oath Keepers didn't do anything illegal at those. Uh, An attorney for another defendant, Thomas Caldwell, used his questioning to try to suggest that the FBI rushed to open an investigation into Caldwell, even portraying him as a senior Oath Keeper leader when he wasn't. All of this, of course, trying to poke holes in the government's case. But look, uh, we expect around 40 witnesses. This was the first, so we've got a long way to go here. And PR's Ryan Lucas. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This week, President Biden is expected to sign a bill that will finally allow Angela Powell to separate her student loan debt from her ex-husband's. Oh, my God. (laughs) That is awesome. This is like almost unbelievable. Powell is one of thousands of borrowers who were left shackled by a federal student loan program that encouraged married couples to consolidate their loans for a lower interest rate more than a decade ago. But the program had a big design flaw. There was no way for borrowers to separate their debts after they had been consolidated, even in cases of divorce or domestic abuse. And so many of these people are still on the hook for student debt that's been run up by an ex-spouse. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo has been talking to some of those borrowers, and she joins me now. Hey there. Hi. Sequoia, it's difficult to believe that the federal government didn't account for the possibility of divorce or separation. So what happened? It is hard to believe. Um, But essentially, this is a relatively small group of borrowers, only about 14,000, who were for the most part forgotten. This was a short-lived program. It only ran from about 1993 to 2006. And when Congress sunset the program, they didn't take into account that borrowers would want to separate the loans for any reason. And This has had wide-ranging consequences. In my reporting, I've talked with borrowers who were victims of domestic violence. They'd moved physically away from their ex-spouse, but they still had to contact them monthly to make sure that they would make their student loan payments. Wow. So did some of them just stop paying? What did they do? Yeah, often they would just stop paying. Uh, That's where borrowers like Angela really had to choose. Would she pay for her ex's student loan debt or tank her own credit and wait for a solution? It's an impossible choice and often one that's outside of borrowers' control when the monthly payments end up being double or triple what their individual loan payments should be. 
So as I understand it, it's not just divorced or separated borrowers who could benefit from this bill. Will other people also be able to separate their loans? Absolutely. I talked to several borrowers who are still married but want to separate their loans because right now they aren't eligible for Public Service Loan Forgiveness, or PSLF, which is a program that promises debt relief to federal student loan borrowers who spend 10 years or more in a public service job like teaching or firefighting. Cynthia Malone is one of those borrowers. She says she didn't realize when she consolidated her loans with her husband, it would bar her from loan forgiveness. The couple should actually both qualify. She's a licensed clinical social worker for the state of Missouri, and her husband is a probation officer. Even though individually they should be able to apply, their combined loan isn't eligible. Okay, and once President Biden signs this bill, what happens next for these borrowers? Once the Education Department comes up with an application process, borrowers will have to apply to divide up their loans. And they'll do that either together or, in some cases, borrowers are allowed to apply for separation by themselves. And the loans should be split based on how much each borrower brought in initially. We don't have the timing on that application yet, but the big rush for many borrowers is this PSLF waiver deadline at the end of October. Borrowers, like the Malones, will need to apply before then in order to get loan forgiveness. We reached out to the Ed Department many times for comment on what these borrowers should expect going forward and whether or not they'll be able to be processed in time to get forgiveness. They say they're working on this, but for now, they don't have any guidance. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thank you. Thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, last year, longtime Boston Globe journalist Jack Thomas recorded his thoughts after he was diagnosed with cancer. Thomas died this past weekend. We'll hear his voice once again. That's coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. No Evil Project uses art, humor, and conversation to challenge stereotypes and show that people are not defined by labels. WorcesterCulture.org. It is 55 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures shouldn't fall too far tonight, if at all. Cloudy, windy, rainy in the mid-50s. Tomorrow, cloudy, windy, rainy yet again, and again reaching the mid to upper 50s. A relief to see the sunshine again on Thursday. Highs about 68 degrees. Game two of a three-game series tonight at Fenway Park for the Red Sox and Tampa Bay Rays. Nathan Navaldi gets the nod for Boston. The Sox come from behind victory last night, gave them a winning record at home this season, 41 wins. 38 losses. This is WBUR. It's 5.52. The court seems back to something like normal, but it's going to be tested this term because the cases this term are almost as momentous as the cases in the last term. And it's going to probably be another difficult, if not wrenching term for the court. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. An inevitable part of life is the end of it. No one cheats death, of course, but most of us don't know just when our time will be up. Longtime Boston Globe reporter Jack Thomas was an exception. He was diagnosed with cancer last year, and doctors said his time would run out in a matter of months. On Saturday, Jack Thomas died at his home in Cambridge. He was 83. 
Last year, he wrote an essay that was originally published in The Globe. Our ideas and opinion team asked him to turn it into a radio commentary for WBUR. We think it's worth another listen. Several years ago, in pursuit of a degree at Harvard, at the ripe old age of 70, I took a seminar in essay writing. Each week we had to compose an essay, and one week I imagine I had been told by doctors that I would die within a few months. In the essay, I pulled out all the stops. I described whom and what I'd miss. I wrote that I hoped for a comfortable afterlife, and I wondered if I would be able to hear my favorite music, choose my savory foods that I like so much, and even whether my newspaper would arrive on time. To my great surprise, my classmates took my essay literally. They held the door for me, and they heaped praise upon my writing. I never had the courage to tell them that it wasn't true. But now destiny is getting even with me. After a week of blood tests and scans, I have been diagnosed with cancer. It's inoperable. Doctors say it will kill me, not in years, but in months. As the saying goes, fate has dealt me one from the bottom of the deck, and I am now condemned to confront the question that has plagued me for years. How will I spend the final months of my life? Till now, life's been grand. I have a beautiful wife, two loving daughters, a devoted son, and I was lucky. From age 14, I knew I wanted to be a newspaper man a career H.L. Mencken described as the life of kings. I started at the Boston Globe as a copy boy, and what followed were beats as police reporter, city editor, national correspondent, and ombudsman, to name a few. As newspapers go, death has a full-time job. And so, like many reporters, I've written a lot about it, about murders, about suicides, fatal accidents, and yet not every story about death has been depressing. I interviewed a man in Florida who was 104 years old. When I arrived at his nursing home, he was not, as I had expected, sitting around in a bathrobe drooling. He was dressed in a sports jacket, as he did every day, and he was reading a book about the history of the Civil War. Editing the final details of one's life is like editing a story for the final time. It's the last shot you have at making corrections, the last rewrite before the roll of the presses. It's been more painful than I thought to throw away files and paperwork that seemed critical to my survival just two weeks ago, like notebooks for stories that will never be written. What's different? Every day I look at my wife's face more adoringly. In the garden, I stare at the long row of blue hydrangeas with more appreciation than before. And my 40 rose bushes brought greater joy this year, not merely in their massive sprays of color, but also in their soft petals and in the aroma that reminded me of my boyhood. As my life nears the finish line, the list of things I'll miss grows. Morning hugs from my wife, the laughter of my daughters and my son, my homes in Cambridge and Falmouth, Massachusetts, chilled Hendrix martinis with a lemon twist. There'll be no more lazy afternoons on Boston Harbor aboard my little sailboat, the Butterfly. 
and no more surprise telephone calls from buddies in Boston and Buffalo and Marblehead who never hang up the telephone without saying, I love you, Jack. I wish the afterlife were arranged so that I could hear Beethoven's Symphony No. 7 again. I'd test whoever's in charge immediately by requesting Till We Meet Again by the great clarinetist George Lewis. In this final chapter of my life, I feel the same uncomfortable transition that I knew as a teenager packing up to go home after a grand summer at camp in New Hampshire. I'm not sure what awaits me, but this has certainly been an exciting experience. I had a loving family. I had a great career in newspapers. I met fascinating people, and I saw a myriad of worldwide wonders. It's been full of fun and lots of laughter, too. A really good time. I just wish I could stay a little longer. Jack Thomas spent six decades working at the Boston Globe, where this essay originally appeared. He died this past weekend in Cambridge. For a link to the essay and photos of Jack and his family, visit WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families, Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at J-H-P-I-E-G-O dot org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is WBUR. Rain likely tonight. Still windy. Shouldn't be too much cooler than it is right now. Look for overcast skies tonight. Rain likely, strong winds as well, and should reach the uh, mid-50s. Then a change in the weather for Thursday and Friday. Sunshine finally emerges. Temperatures reach well into the 60s and the low 70s. Red Sox have won each of their last four home games. They could make it five tonight as they play the middle game of a three-game set with the Tampa Bay Rays. Nathan Navaldi throws his first pitch at Fenway at 7:10 Tonight at 7 o'clock, it's on point. Republicans have a chance to take back the U.S. House and Senate in November's midterm elections. Conservative voters across the nation share what's on their mind. I'm education reporter Max Larkin, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A now former employee of Northeastern University who ran a media lab was charged today with staging a bomb hoax last month and providing false information to investigators. Officials say they found a word-for-word threatening letter directed at Northeastern on his computer. It's Tuesday, October 4th, and this is All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, Hurricane Ian demolished much of Pine Island, Florida, leaving its residents without any good options. I'm 65 years old. I don't think I could do all this work that's got to be done. So what do I do? I put a FEMA claim in, or do I come back here and try to rebuild? We'll have more from Pine Island coming up. And Senator Elizabeth Warren is calling for more oversight of the popular banking service Zelle. In a new report, she says the platform is rife with fraud and theft. It's 601 News Headlines and an update again on Wall Street coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments today in a major election case involving the Voting Rights Act and congressional districts in Alabama. As NPR's Hansi Luang reports, voting rights advocates are watching to see if the court's ruling will make it harder to protect the political power of voters of color around the country. Alabama is asking the Supreme Court to overturn a lower court's order for the state to comply with the Voting Rights Act by creating a second congressional district where black voters make up the majority or close to it. During oral arguments, Alabama's lawyer claimed the 14th Amendment does not allow race to be considered when drawing voting districts. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson pushed back, citing the congressional record. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way. The court is expected to rule by early July. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. Nearly a week after Hurricane Ian made landfall along Florida's Gulf Coast, hundreds of thousands of residents remain without power. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports the death toll in Florida has reached at least 100. Search and rescue efforts have mostly now turned to recovery and damage assessment. State and local utility companies say they hope to have 95% of customers fully back online by the end of the week. On the barrier islands off the coast of Fort Myers, it's a different story. Authorities would not say when power might return to those devastated beach communities. And restoring ruined bridges from the mainland will also take time. Rivers are slowly subsiding from historic flood levels, and lines at gas stations are getting shorter. But the work of rebuilding hundreds of thousands of homes has hardly begun. President Biden is expected to visit the area tomorrow. Quill Lawrence, NPR News, Naples, Florida. Elon Musk has apparently had a change of heart. He now reportedly wants to go ahead with his purchase of Twitter. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon reports on the unexpected move in the high-stakes legal fight over the future ownership of the struggling social media company. A source close to the deal told NPR that Musk's team sent a letter late last night saying he'll pay the previously agreed-upon price of $54.20 a share. That's $44 billion. The offer, first reported by Bloomberg, is yet another twist in the knockdown, drag-out court drama over the merger that Musk tried to abandon in July. This latest news sent Twitter shares soaring before the Nasdaq halted trading. Musk signed a binding merger agreement in May, but then tried to back out after the company's value sank. The court released pages of Musk's personal Twitter messages last week, and he's scheduled for two days of deposition questioning on Thursday. Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, San Francisco. A good trading day on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 825 points. You're listening to NPR. The U.S. today is strongly condemning North Korea's launch of a ballistic missile that flew over Japan before falling into the sea. 
The launch yesterday forced the Japanese government to issue evacuation alerts and halt trains. It was the most provocative weapons demonstration by North Korea this year, as Pyongyang continues its push to develop a full-fledged nuclear arsenal capable of threatening the U.S. Europe is facing unprecedented risks to its energy supply this winter. That's according to the Paris-based International Energy Agency. It was contained in a report out this week. NPR's Alner Beardsley reports analysts say a years-long gas shortage could cripple the European industry. Europe is ramping up imports of liquefied natural gas, especially from North America. But the EU will be competing with Asia this winter for scarce gas supplies. François-Régis Mouton is the Europe director for the International Association of Oil and Gas Producers. He says many governments are protecting households. Industry will be extremely hard hit by shortages and high prices. When you have a gas bill uh, multiplied by 3, 5, up to 10 from one year to the other, there are many, many industries that will not be able to afford it. Mouton says fertilizer, paper and glass manufacturers have either slowed or stopped altogether. He worries many will never start up again. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Boise, Idaho-based Micron Technology says it plans to open a new semiconductor plant in New York and is promising an investment of up to $100 billion. The company says the plant could bring 50,000 jobs. It's being built in the Syracuse area. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. And I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR. South American migrants who were flown to Martha's Vineyard last month by Florida's governor are expected to be placed in transitional housing this week. The Baker administration says 35 of the 49 migrants remain in temporary shelter at Joint Base Cape Cod in Bourne. They're working with case managers to find housing. Fourteen of the migrants have already left the base for opportunities inside Massachusetts and out. The temporary shelter in Bourne is expected to close by this weekend. The entire Massachusetts congressional delegation is calling on the Biden administration to speed up the release of heating aid money. The delegation has written to the Division of Energy Assistance, calling for money to begin arriving a few weeks earlier than usual so families can get help before temperatures drop significantly. The state is in line for $37 million in heating aid money from the government funding package the president signed on Friday. And Boston police say a student who was shot this morning outside Dorchester's Jeremiah Burke High School is in stable condition. Investigators say he was shot by another student. WBR's Carrie Young reports. Safety officials with Boston Public Schools say the scene at the school is safe after it went into lockdown around 9.30 a.m. following the shooting. Superintendent Mary Skipper says officials are now focused on addressing student trauma. There's a lot of work to be done with the students who have just experienced what they've experienced. And this happens again and again too much. I've been in this for almost 30 years and too many times. So our work right now is to support the students that are in the building. Mayor Michelle Wu and Boston public safety officials say today's incident was another unacceptable example of gun violence in the city. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. A chilly wind out there, showers off and on overnight tonight and back again tomorrow. Lows tonight in the mid-50s, just about where they are right now. Tomorrow's highs in the mid to upper 50s. This is WBUR at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, working together with communities to break down barriers and prepare all people for success in their jobs and careers as employees or entrepreneurs. More online at Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. 
And I'm Juana Summers. The death toll from Hurricane Ian in Florida is now at least 100, and it continues to rise in the hardest-hit counties still in search and recovery mode. On Pine Island, Florida's largest Gulf Coast island, the only road to the mainland is impassable. For people trying to get off the island, the Coast Guard, Sheriff, and Fire Department are standing by with boats and helicopters. But that is just a one-way trip. For those trying to get back on the island to check on homes or neighbors or to salvage their belongings, well, there's only one option, as NPR's Liz Baker found out. This pontoon boat is usually a party barge with beers and brogues, but today it's a ferry. We've got that huge pontoon that just pulled through. If you guys want to take a ride with us. Rosie Perez is on board. She evacuated before the storm and wants to get home to pick up the pieces, if any pieces are left. I'm nervous. It's my first time going over there, so I don't know what to expect, really. You you see the pictures and you hear about it, but it's nothing like about actually experiencing it. So, Passengers start sharing their hurricane stories. One guy says he pulled a dead woman out of the water. Another asks about looters. Everyone has heard unsubstantiated rumors, and many of the passengers have guns. Others think about the items they hope to recover. All my credit cards were in a little stack in a drawer. If I could find that dresser, I could get my credit cards. Cause my medical records are there. I'm hoping to find something, something I could hold on to. The last time Lenny Satani saw his home in Matt Lachey, it was flooded with five feet of storm surge. The fire department had to rescue Satani, his daughter, and his grandkids after the storm passed. As the barge fights a strong current and weaves around floating porter potties, sunken sailboats, and twisted metal roofs, Satani gets his first look at the destruction on shore. Oh my God, that whole bridge is gone. In some spots, you would never know. Homes and a road used to exist, where now there's only a hole filled with black, brackish water. Rosie Perez starts to worry about her neighbors who stayed behind. You know, I don't even know if any any of the people that maybe didn't survive, they haven't really announced anything. So the waiting game of knowing how people are is, is hard. The boat drops people off at a waterfront park caked with foul-smelling mud. Utility poles, pieces of houses, and a huge walk-in freezer from a restaurant block the road to Lenny Satani's roofless yellow fishing bungalow. That old house was there since 1949. Inside is a mess of mud with furniture and belongings flung everywhere by the storm surge. Satani's son-in-law forces the door open and starts to dig around. $500 watch my dad gave me for he passed away. Huh? Anything in your closet? I don't think so. Satani piles some photos, his old army uniform, and those credit cards he had been hoping to find into a container and wheels it away down the street, off to flag a boat to the mainland. He's not coming back. No, I can't do it. John Orbanis is on the fence about leaving. I'm 65 years old. I don't think I could do all this work that's got to be done. So what do I do? I put a FEMA claim in. And I walk away. Whatever FEMA gives me, I live on that Social Security in my retirement. Or do I come back here and try to rebuild? Orbanis' home in the Flamingo Bay trailer park has no roof, but it's still standing, so he's hosting three newly homeless neighbors. One of them is 75-year-old Diana Bisson. At night, she sleeps on Orbanis' kitchen floor. During the day, she and her partner sort through what's left of the home they've shared for 28 years. That's all my clothing out of my drawers. I'm just throwing it away. Um, my partner has cancer of the lungs, and she was supposed to have her last chemo Friday. Both our cars are completely cooked. 
But she hasn't yet found her most meaningful possessions. I lost both my son's ashes. They were in my room. They're gone. I have been all through that whole thing. I found this. That was my oldest boy, Leo's. A short gold chain, now around her neck. Yep, I found it and I'll never take it off. Bisson and her partner are planning to leave as soon as the road is passable. They've heard maybe Saturday. She doesn't know if they'll be back, but this will always be home, even though it'll never be the same, she says. Liz Baker, NPR News, Pine Island, Florida. Now, Hurricane Ian made landfall in one of the fastest-growing places in the nation. Starting in the 1970s, a wave of newly arriving retirees and snowbirds made development across Florida explode. Back then, state leaders put rules in place to try to manage that growth. But over the last decade, state politics have meant some of those rules have disappeared, even as threats from climate change have grown more severe. Jenny Stiletovich from WLRN in Miami has been covering these changes. And um, Jenny, these 70s era rules, they were intended to limit growth. Tell me more about how they worked, whether they were designed with hurricanes in mind. Right. So in the 1970s, Florida actually became something of a model when it began enacting a bunch of laws to manage growth and, you know, protect against uh, those hurricanes. The laws were a response to big retirement and golf communities that developers were building across the state in wetlands and floodplains. Um, And in a state that sits squarely in Hurricane Alley, those are the areas that help buffer damage from storm surge and absorb the flooding. I talked to Nancy Stroud. Um, She's an attorney and land use planner, and she worked for the state in the 70s helping write those growth management laws. It's all connected. You know, if you do good growth management, then you're going to be able to manage some of the bad impacts of climate change. At least some parts of the state really stepped up, but takes a lot of intention, takes a lot of help from all sectors. And Stroud says the coast got particular attention. That included Charlotte Harbor, where Ian made landfall. So what happened? How did how did these laws disappear? <laughs> so so there's protections for the Keys, which is the Long Islands at the tip of Florida, and they're still in place. But for the rest of the state, a developer got that particular law overturned. So the state left it up to communities to voluntarily put limits in place and to help local governments enforce and follow those and other rules. The state then created the Department of Community Affairs in 1985. But developers hated the agency. They said the state was overreaching its authority. So the industry poured a bunch of money into lobbying to change the laws. Um, And when current Florida Senator Rick Scott was running for governor in 2010, he called the growth rules, quote, a jobs killer. Under his administration, the state did away with the department that enforced the rules and instead created the Department of Economic Opportunity. And just to pause on the timing for a second, you said 2010, so more than a decade ago, but but at a time when it was already clear that climate change was making things worse, problems like flooding. Right, that's right. So researchers in Florida were already documenting rising sea levels. And by taking away the state oversight, that left local governments in charge and really paved the way for more growth. It removed checks and balances, and it lessened the environmental protections. And when when Rick Scott was governor, he was an open skeptic of climate change. Without managing the growth, Florida's population um, has grown really quickly in some areas, including the path of Hurricane Ian. And that means more people were put in harm's way than likely would have been if those anti-sprawl measures were still in place. So I'm curious, what does now Senator Rick Scott say today? 
Yeah, so we reached out to Scott's office for an interview, but they said he was unavailable when he was asked Sunday on CBS's Face the Nation about rebuilding in such vulnerable areas. He said this. I believe these places are places where people want to live. They're beautiful places. So what you really have to do is you have to say, I'm going to build, but I'm going to do it safely. After Andrew in 1992, the state completely changed its building codes, which has dramatically reduced the risk of, of damage. So we should point out that those building code changes only address wind damage, not storm surge and flooding. And now Scott says the state also needs to invest in mitigating sea level rise and flooding. Fascinating. Jenny Stiletovich from member station WLRN in Miami. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Federal law enforcement officials in Boston are charging a former Northeastern University employee with staging a bomb hoax on campus last month. The report of a package explosion generated a massive police response and it locked down part of the city. Walter Wuthman of member station WBUR reports. Jason Duhame was the director of Northeastern's immersive media lab. He called 911 the night of September 13th, saying a package he carried up to the lab exploded. Court documents show Duhame told FBI investigators the plastic case burst open and sprayed sharp objects that injured his hand. The package also contained a letter railing against Duhame's media lab and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. A federal bomb squad came and secured a second suspicious package. In a press conference today, FBI special agent in charge Joseph Bonavolanta said Duhame's story quickly unraveled under scrutiny. We believe he repeatedly lied to us about what happened inside the lab faked his injuries, and wrote a rambling letter directed at the lab threatening more violence. Investigators say they found no burns or shrapnel at the scene, and they found a copy of the letter on Duhame's computer. Law enforcement officials are not commenting on a possible motive, but Bonavolanta says Duhame may have been seeking attention. We believe Mr. Duhame wanted to be the victim, but instead victimized his entire community by instilling fear at college campuses in Massachusetts and beyond. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins said Duhame's actions brought back memories of the bombings at the Boston Marathon in 2013 that killed three people and injured hundreds. Our city more than most knows all too well that a report or threat of an explosion is a very serious matter and necessitates an immediate and significant law enforcement response given the potential devastation that can ensue. Duhame stands accused of conveying false information and hoaxes related to an explosive device and making material false and fictitious statements to investigators. Duhame is no longer employed by Northeastern. He was arrested near his home in Texas. His defense attorney has not returned a request for comment. For NPR News, I'm Walter Wuthman in Boston. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks soared again on Wall Street. The Dow rose about two and three quarters percent, or 825 points, to close at 30,316. Index has grown more than 1,500 points so far this week. The S&P picked up more than three percent today to finish at 3,791. The Nasdaq rose three and a third percent to close at 11,176. 
A Somerville-based startup raised more than $100 million in recent funding for what it calls an entirely new approach to drug development. Local biotech Celerity focuses on RNA technology to develop medicines targeted at cells. Celerity has raised more than $270 million in funding since it began in 2017. Marketplace has all the business news of the day coming up at 6.30. It's now 6.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Red Sox have won each of their last four home games. They could make it five tonight as they play the middle game of a three-game set with the Tampa Bay Rays. Nathan Navaldi throws the first pitch at Fenway at 7-10. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Botanic Garden at Tower Hill. The beauty and magic of autumn is on display all season long. Plan your visit at nebg.org. Windy and raw weather continues tonight and tomorrow. Look for overnight lows tonight right about where they are right now, 55 degrees. Tomorrow should be much like today. Lots of clouds around, some rain off and on, temperatures about 58. Finally, some sunshine on Thursday could warm to nearly 70, then the low 70s on Friday. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, offering programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th century townhouse in the heart of Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Millions of people use the payment service Zelle to send and receive money. But Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren says it is rife with fraud and theft. And she says big banks that own Zelle are not doing enough to protect users from scams. NPR's David Gura reports. Banks market Zelle as a fast, safe, and easy way to send and receive money. But Senator Elizabeth Warren takes issue with that. She spent six months investigating the service and criticized bank CEOs at a recent hearing. Zelle is fast, Zelle is easy, and they increase bank profit margins, but Zelle is not safe. Warren found that in 2021, fraudulent transactions on Zelle totaled almost half a billion dollars. That's according to a new report she released, and she found banks had reimbursed customers less than half the money that was stolen through unauthorized payments on Zelle. While banks pay back customers for fraud, transactions they didn't authorize, there is no blanket policy for scams when bad actors convince Zelle users to transfer money. Bill Demchak, the CEO of PNC, addressed that distinction during his congressional testimony. Scam is a different issue, and the Zelle network and the owners are working to improve to get all customers' monies back. At that recent hearing, Warren had a testy exchange with Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, about data on fraud complaints she'd asked for but hadn't gotten. It's get, very simple I data. promise you by the end of the day today you'll get it. Terrific. All right. We'll get it by the end of the day once nobody's here to talk about it. In her report, Warren notes that almost two weeks later, she still hasn't gotten that information. In a statement, the banking industry says 99.9% of Zelle transactions have not involved reports of fraud or scams. And they argue Zelle is being unfairly singled out, given there is also fraud on its rivals, including PayPal and Venmo, which are not run by banks. David Gura, NPR News, New York. 
A new book is providing some behind-the-scenes details about the congressional committee that's investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Denver Riggleman served as an advisor to the committee for eight months. He talked to NPR's Tom Dreisbach about his time working on that investigation and the revelations in his book, The Breach. Denver Riggleman is not exactly a typical congressional staffer. After serving in the Air Force and working as a contractor for the National Security Agency, he actually got elected to Congress himself in 2018. And Donald Trump endorsed him. As a freshman Republican, Riggleman even joined the House Freedom Caucus alongside congressmen who would later try to overturn the 2020 election. Riggleman now says that his support for Trump and the Freedom Caucus was less about principle than winning election. And that is something he regrets. Oh, of course. You know, there's some things that you do that you think you have to win. And mm. I did. I had a consultant who was correct. You know, he said, hey, Denver, you got to be a little bit crazy if you're going to beat the crazier people on the right. I would say being a politician, I wasn't as talented as I thought I was going to be at it. How about that? In the summer of 2020, Riggleman lost the primary to a more hard right Republican. Heading into the election, he criticized Trump and his embrace of extremism. I might have been one of the first Republicans that was a sitting member to see that President Trump was retweeting some pretty crazy QAnon-based sort of troll farm conspiracies, even things that were calling for violence. So no, I did not vote for him. Who did you vote for? Actually, uh, Denver Riggleman got a vote for president then. So Oh, you voted for yourself. I did. I did. When the January 6th committee started, Riggleman joined the staff as a senior technical advisor. In his book, Riggleman reveals a new detail. Someone at the White House actually placed a call during the riot to someone who breached the Capitol. There are still some mysteries about that call. It lasted just nine seconds, and we don't know what was said or who at the White House made the call. The writer that received the call is not high profile. He pleaded guilty to a nonviolent misdemeanor for spending about 10 minutes inside the building, and the call took place after he left. Still, Riggleman says that call is a crucial clue. Well, nine seconds as an attorney to a counterterrorism analyst. And the fact that the call came from inside the White House at a desk, was routed through the switchboard or defaulted to that number and went to a writer, it's something that's extremely important. Since Riggleman's book came out, members of the committee have kind of downplayed the significance of that call. Here's Congressman Jamie Raskin on NBC's Meet the Press. That's one of thousands of details that obviously the committee is aware of. And to me, it's interesting, but um, much less interesting than the fact that Donald Trump told the crowd in public, you got to fight like hell. And if you don't, you're not going to have a country anymore. Um, As part of his work, Riggleman examined the text messages from former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' phone, especially messages sent by Ginny Thomas. She's a longtime conservative activist and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In her messages to Meadows leading up to January 6th, Ginny Thomas brainstormed congressional and legal strategies to overturn the election. You know, I called today, you know, the first time I saw Ginny Thomas text, I called it a bourbon text. You have to take a shot of bourbon to get through it. Why so, is that? It's just so crazy. You know, you need a drink. In one of those texts, Jenny Thomas shared a QAnon-esque conspiracy theory that the, quote, Biden crime family was being arrested for ballot fraud and sent to Guantanamo Bay. Last week, Ginny Thomas testified to the committee and denied ever discussing politics with her husband. Those messages pose a challenge for the January 6th committee. Should they take the extraordinary step of investigating a sitting Supreme Court justice? Riggleman says yes. 
I mean, it's possible uh, that Clarence Thomas didn't know about Jenny Thomas's activities, not just, you know, around January 6th and the election, but through the years as a Republican activist. But I don't know if it's probable. It does call into question, you know, if there were any conflicts. Do you think the committee would actually take a step to investigate Justice Thomas? It's been 14 months, 15 months since it started. I, I don't think they're going to go there. I think uh, this is a long process with thousands of witnesses. The committee is wrapping up, so I don't think they're going to get to that. Do you think that's a mistake? <sighs> you know, the way it's going, with the evidence that they have that I might not have seen, I'm just not sure. With what I've seen, I think it would have been appropriate to talk to Justice Thomas. I think Jenny coming in is a heck of a great step by the committee. But I do believe, you know, at some point, the American public is going to have to come to their own conclusions about that. As the committee starts wrapping up its work, I asked Riegelman about another big question they'll have to decide. There's been some debate about whether the committee should ultimately make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice, possibly for Trump himself or for other people. What do you think the committee should do? I don't I don't think they should. Really? Um, Why is that? Yeah, I don't. And I think with the evidence that they have, if they're sharing evidence with the DOJ, uh, let the DOJ make that decision. What I would do, instead of getting caught up the politics of referrals, just present the best case you can to the American public that regardless of criminal charges, we can't have the lunatics running the asylum. They've already proven that based on conspiracy theories, based on coordination, based on really a president that decided to really cavort with the craziest in the far right base, all of that suggests that you have a president that was unfit for office, because even with criminal referrals, it's going to be up to the voters if they want to continue to support that kind of nonsense. Riegelman's decision to publish the breach did not sit well with members of the January 6th committee. A committee spokesperson said he has limited knowledge of the entire investigation, and they've suggested that Riegelman may have violated an agreement to keep details of the investigation confidential. Riegelman denies that. He says the information the committee has uncovered ultimately belongs to the public. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News. And you're listening to All Things Considered. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org.